Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living doing something you really care about. And our guest today is somebody who knows a lot about that. Our guest has done everything from info products to building and selling a massive SaaS application. He's also known for his conference, MicroConf, his podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, and just an all-around great guy who I think shares a lot of the same philosophies that we do here at The Fizzle Show. So welcome today, Rob Walling. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure to come back on the show. I was on it in the previous incarnation, I believe. Yeah, it's it's been quite a while. Uh, it's been a while since we chatted. I think uh, the last time that we chatted, not in the context of the show, was when you were building Drip. And I remember uh, you were out there shaking the bushes and, and rustling up customers, yep. doing sort of one-on-one sales. For people who aren't familiar with your entrepreneurial journey, do you think you could distill it down for us in, in a nutshell? Yeah, I mean, I think the nutshell is software developer turned entrepreneur. And to do that, I had to learn how to market like a lot of us do. You know, so many of us think that marketing is a, is a dirty word or sales is a dirty word. But when I wanted to, to leave the day job, it was like, how else can you make money? You have to learn how to spread the word and, and to sing the praises of, you know, whatever it is that you're building. And so I built some projects on the side, made it very much lifestyle oriented. I've never raised funding uh, for, for, you know, a startup. And I launched these tiny little a month projects. I built up enough of those to eventually have a full-time income. In California, that was about eight or 10K a month. And then I used that to start a, you know, a slightly larger one, or I acquired one at that point, a SaaS app. And, uh, you know, that kind of changed my life in terms of, oh, I'm now making a few hundred thousand dollars a year. I never thought I would in my life, having grown up, you know, very working class, use that to parlay into drip and then on, you know, on and up. So that's kind of the, the you know, the nutshell without getting into many <laughs> the, su- the super quick nutshell. Yeah. What was your day job before you, you left and did your own thing? So uh, when I graduated college with electrical engineering degree, I went and worked for a construction firm and I was a project manager. And then I... There was actually, what's interesting, there's more money in being an electrician in the Bay Area, union electrician, which is where I grew up, than project management until you get, you know, 10 years in or whatever to project management, you know, because I was making, I was a PM, I was making 40K or something uh, a year, which in the Bay Area and then it was like 99. just not enough to live on. Crazy. Like I, yeah, I was, I was living with my, my parents because I, you know, I couldn't afford anything. And so then I became an electrician. And at, and I was like, this is an interest, you know, so then I'm making 60K or 70K. <laughs> right. and, and I was like, this is not fun. You know, this is, <laughs> I don't want to do this. And I don't want to be, the thing I struggled with, man, was being around, I was around, it wasn't everyone I worked with, but a lot of folks that I worked with had these very fixed mindsets, very mm-hmm. negative, very, it's everyone else's fault, blaming the contractor, blaming the other guy, blaming the boss. It was just a lot of negativity. And I, I was like, I don't, that's not me. And I don't want to become that. I think if you work around folks like that for 20 years, you probably become that too. And so I had learned to code when I was younger a little bit and well, quite a bit actually. And then I started going to the library, um, you know, late 99, early 2000. And I checked out books on Perl and PHP and ASP, these really early web technologies. Yeah. And I started hacking away at it and I applied for a job in Sacramento. And not only was the cost of living about one third, but they gave me a job writing code. I couldn't believe people paid, you know, got paid to write code, but I moved <laughs> up there and, and it was, I got paid the same amount in a place that cost a third of the cost of living. And I was like, wait a minute, as much as I born and raised, love the Bay area, I don't think I'll ever move back. And I have never, I've never lived there Which again. part of the Bay did you grow up in? I grew up in the East Bay, like near Pleasanton. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Pleasanton. Yeah. And um, you mentioned that you grew up kind of working class. What did your parents do, if you don't mind me yeah, asking? Yeah. So my mom was a homemaker and my dad was an electrician. Not coincidentally, he worked for the same electrical contractor. Um, and I mean, he never, neither of my parents went to college. You know, it was that kind of story. My dad just happened to stumble into a trade, which is a great gig in the, you know, in the 60s, 70s. It's still a good gig, but um, that was that was it. And, and I never, you know, I was never hungry. But I didn't have money to buy. I never had, never had name brand clothes. I never had all the CD. You know, it wasn't even CDs. It was cassette tapes and the comic books and stuff that I wanted. So early on, I was doing entrepreneurial things because that was kind of my ticket to. If I could make ten bucks, twenty bucks a month, like that was a big difference for me because I, you know, I wasn't paid an allowance. And uh, where did you go to college and, wh- and what did you study there? Yeah, I went to UC Davis. So it's Northern oh. California in Davis. Um, and I studied electrical engineering. And then I yep. found out about a year in that if I went for two extra quarters, I could get a computer engineering degree. So I could get two degrees, a double major in essence. And computer engineering is more about hardware than software, but there were a few programming classes in it. And it kind of, I had programmed when I was a kid. Again, as the working class, like my dad saved up my dad and mom saved up like three or $4,000 in 1980s dollars to get us an Apple IIe, which is a, a, you know, I mean, it's a classic, like game-changing computer. Totally changed my life. But, and I programmed until high school and then it was super nerdy and you got beat up and you got made fun of and you got thrown in the dumpster if you were nerdy back then. Now it's popular, but like I stopped. I just walked away from that. I walked away from Dungeons and Dragons. I walked away from a bunch of things that now I like again and are, are cool. They're like yeah. nerd culture has taken over. It's great how nerd culture has come back around, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, so that was it. So then in college, I was like, oh, I'm going to toy dabble around with a few of these programming classes. And that kind of re-sparked it a little bit of like, there's something here. I enjoy, I really enjoy making, right? That's what it's always come down to is like creating. And mm-hmm. basically becoming an entrepreneur was just my, my way of, I just, all my own time. I literally wanted the freedom to be able to make whatever I wanted when I wanted. And that's what I, that's what I do today. I, you know, when I, after I sold my last company, I looked around and said, okay, so now I don't have to work. What do I do now? And guess what I did? I went and made another company (laughs) because that's what I wanted to make. You know, that's what we do, right? As entrepreneurs, as my wife often tells me. Did you, as a kid growing up in high school and college, have any idea that you would be an entrepreneur? Did you, did you want to start a business? Did you have any interest in business? And did you see yourself um, being uh, rich and internet famous one day? I <laughs> I didn't. Well, hey, the internet didn't, <laughs> internet didn't exist. You were dating each our, ourselves right now. Yeah. Um, I I did realize early on. Again, coming back to that, I wanted batteries from I wanted simple things I wanted enough batteries for my Walkman that they didn't run out on me when I was on the bus on the way home you know and I wanted uh, another comic book or I wanted another G.I. Joe figure and the only way to get money for that was to be entrepreneurial so I knew that there was something about you know buying and selling or creating I I saw that if you wrote books and if you wrote a book you could sell it a hundred times without paying each time, you know, mm-hmm. and you can sell it for 10 bucks and print it for a dollar. I was like, wow, those economics are crazy, you know? So I knew there was something to, to that. Um, and then as I got into the, the tough part is like, especially in the eighties and, and the early nineties before internet, you're dealing with, you know, Forbes, Fortune, these magazines, Inc. Magazine. I mean, those were my business. That was my business education, maybe some books by 
you know, I don't know. People, I, I don't remember who they were. You know, there was like a Warren yeah. Buffett book and there were this and that. And there was no one talking about what we do, right? This small, like, uh, you know, micro entrepreneurship because it kind of didn't exist back then. Yeah. Um, if anything, they might have been talking about franchises or something, yes, but an MLM yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I, and I knew I didn't, I didn't love the big business, but I thought that's all there was. Like that, because when you read those magazines, it's like you go big and, and whatever. So I thought I was going to become an executive at a big company. And that was really my goal. But it was, I mean, I've been an executive at a small, at several small companies now. And that's what I really wanted. I just didn't know it existed. So I, I did start doing a lot of business reading and research um, as I got out of college to try to figure out what it was that I was actually after. Mm-hmm. We, we have uh, similar backgrounds. I, I grew up working class as well. Uh, my parents didn't spring for the Apple, but I did have a Commodore 64 yeah. as a kid and, and learned how to program in basic and, um, and always kind of had an interest in technology, but wasn't sure how I would ever start a business around it and, and really didn't have any examples at the time. The only example that I had of entrepreneurship was uh, the, the guy that owned the gas stations that I worked for in high school. And I knew that at least being the boss seemed kind of interesting. Um, but certainly I didn't want to sit in an office at a gas station all day. Right. Um, and so connecting those dots was, was difficult. And then of course, uh, I got into working for fortune 500 companies for a while and, um, working in a cubicle wasn't so glamorous either. When was the first time that you were aware of people being independent entrepreneurs, small, Mm. independent businesses, especially based around technology? Do you remember the first time that you heard about somebody doing that sort of thing? Absolutely. It was Joel Spolsky of Fog Creek Software, and it was in late 2000 or early 2001, and it was the first blog I'd ever heard of. It was just, he just called it essays. You know, he just wrote essays at joelonsoftware.com. And I hadn't realized that you could do any of that. And he was starting a consulting firm to get really good developers together. And then they wanted, he wanted to build software products and they built fog bugs. They built that later on, they built uh, a stack overflow and stack exchange. They built Trello. Um, what else are they doing? I mean, it's like, and every, now they're doing, what is it called? Glitch or something? Glitch. Yep. Yeah. And, and yeah. then, I mean, there was so, so much they've done. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, Joel was my early inspiration for several, for many years actually. And then I, from him, I got the only other person that I saw writing about this was Paul Graham. This is pre YC. Paul Graham yeah. had sold his startup for small, cha- um, 20 Bio million or something. Bioweb, yep. For 20 yeah. million to Yahoo. And he yep. wrote a book called hackers and painters. That was half like a treatise on the Lisp language and half about here's how, what you can do if you want to start your own startup. And those were my two early inspirations for sure. Uh, we should, I, I think a, a good segue into, I, I want to talk about drip and, and your experience there. That was a, a rocket ship, I think. And, and it was, uh, maybe, maybe a little longer than it appeared from the outside. So I want to hear about that, but you didn't just jump into doing drip and, and you wrote an essay a while back about this idea of a stair step approach. And I think a lot of people look at success from someone like yourself, um, or even, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Nathan Barry, who's also in the email marketing space with ConvertKit, And he's got this tremendous success on his hands there. Um, and people feel this, this, um, anxiety about just wanting to get into the, their big success, jump right into it. What's my, what's my big thing going to be right. But you have this, this idea of building up to that slowly, this stair-step approach. Tell us, 
about that? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, the, the quick summary is that you shouldn't try to go play in the major leagues if you're a 12-year-old kid, right? Major League Baseball, uh, for those outside the U.S. You should try to play Little League, then you should try to play, uh, you know, junior high, then high school, then college, then AAA, and then, and then jump up. The stair-step approach basically says, don't try to go raise millions of dollars and start some huge thing as your first act, because you don't have the confidence, you don't have the skills, you don't have the experience, you probably can't raise the money. If you have your, you probably don't have the money yourself. And if you don't have it, you know, if you do have it, it's probably going to be a fool's errand to do it. So the stair-step approach, I think of it in terms of three steps. The first step is you, you build or acquire, most folks build, um, a small product that you can get to a few thousand dollars a month. Maybe it's a thousand, maybe it's three, four, five, but you don't shoot for the moon. You go for a really non-competitive space and you try to just find a single traffic source that can get you uh, all the learnings of just getting, making your first dollar, you know, or first thousand dollars online. Oftentimes, like in my world, since it's software, it's oftentimes a WordPress plugin or it's an add-on to Shopify or it's, um, you know, some little import tool that people use once. There's no recurring revenue. But in the info space, it's great because you can write an ebook, you can write a, you know, a, a video course. I, I made a video course for, I forgot how much I even charged for it. It might have been $50 one time on how to hire a VA at, for a startup. And I threw that out there and that, you know, that made me like $7,000, $8,000 total over the lifetime of the course, but it was, it was totally worth, you know, it, it was something that was worth doing. And so once you get that experience and you get the skill of like, Hey, I've never written copy for, for, you know, actual marketing copy that I've put live and, and right. had to feel good about it. I've never actually answered a support email. Like, what is that like when someone emails? I've never had to put something into the world and feel so vulnerable. Um, I've, it, there's a confidence thing. There's skills that you learn, uh, you know, all the marketing and stuff. And then you have a little bit of revenue that you can then parlay up into more of those step one apps. So the, the step two is to have enough of those step one apps. Again, probably nothing recurring, but enough of those that you basically buy out all your time. Right. So if you live in the US, maybe that's 8K a month or 10K a month. If you live overseas, depending on, I mean, it could be 3K a month if you're living in Thailand. Right. Yeah. And once you own all your time, well, now the world is your oyster. Now you can take those apps you have, you could parlay them up, the revenue, you could uh, parlay the audience you have, you could sell, liquidate all of those and take the cash to then build something that is more stable and more recurring. Those are kind of the three steps. And I've seen, what's interesting is I traveled it accidentally, you know, from two, about 2006 to, to 20, 2012, 2013. But I've seen literally dozens of other founders. I give some examples, you know, in a blog post. If you just boots, uh, Google stair-step approach to bootstrapping, um, you'll see it. And, and the whole point of it is to make it more approachable, more uh, um, repeatable. It's not like you're trying to scale a 15-foot fence without a rope. It's like, there's stairs on this thing, but it's going to take you longer. Now the drawback to it, yeah, well, what are the negatives? It takes you longer. You know what I mean? If I were to go for, to try to launch Uber tomorrow and somehow I raise the money, yeah, I'm going to get there and become a multimillionaire or whatever, but the odds of that are, are one in how many? 10,000, 100,000? Whereas the stair step approach is super repeatable. It's base hits along the way. You build your own confidence. Frankly, you build confidence with a spouse or significant other. If, if you're trying to convince someone, hey, I'm going to spend a bunch of time on the side to launch this thing. If you come back in six months and you're like, hey, I'm making $1,000, $2,000 a month from this. It's like, oh, this is actually real then. This is a real thing. Yeah. And I'm going to now do it again. You know, and you, I, I, I did that with, with my spouse's why I bring it up as, as an example. And uh, you built both, in, you mentioned info products. You had a, a small course or an ebook for yep. sale. Um, yep. 
And, uh, and then you also built, did you ever build like a WordPress plugin or anything like that? That was like a one-off software kind of thing. Yeah. I, I had something called .NET invoice, which I actually acquired while it was in beta, but it was, mm. I had almost no revenue and it was just single. It was before SAS. So it was a one-time downloadable piece of software. And, um, it was, went for about $300 download. And I got that up to about between two and two and three, two and four grand a month as just a one-time sale thing. And it plateaued and I could never get it past that, but that's okay. That's a, It's just a stepping stone. It's just a stair step on the way to the next and the next and the next. And I built that on a little e-commerce site I had selling beach towels that made two grand a month. You know, I stacked that on top of the eBooks you're talking about that were on random things. And eventually I had about eight grand a month and that's when I quit. You know, that's when I quit consulting. And were you along the way looking for a home run? Were you, were you looking for your big thing? Did you have in mind eventually that you would build something that became really big? Early on, I thought that was the only way to do it because of the press, you know, because of Inc. Magazine and TechCrunch and Mashable, you know, you read these things. It's like, well, this is what you do, right? If you're going to start, especially, especially in software, I'm a software developer. What do you do to start a startup? Well, you raise a bunch of money and you, you build Uber or Yelp or Facebook, you know, back in then, what was it? It, it was, a. Uh, um, I don't even remember whatever the big, you know, things were MySpace, you know, you try to build this huge consumer thing. Orkut. Orkut. Yeah. All the, <laughs> these great names from the Bebo. Back. Oh my gosh. Friendster. <laughs> um, and that's what I thought you had to do. But then the, to be honest, the realization was I applied. So I'm a fan of Paul Graham going way back, going to 2002 ish when he started writing essays. And so I applied to Y Combinator like the second or third year of it. And have, even if we could have got in, I don't think I could have done it. I had a wife, I had a kid, we didn't live in Boston, I couldn't have moved there, you know, there's all this stuff. But we got to the second or third round of, of interviews. And I was stressing this whole year about trying to come up with this big idea and implement this big idea. My wife was at Yale getting a, um, finishing up her PhD in psychology. And I was working with two Yale MBAs and they were thinking so big because all their MBA courses said big, big, big. And we applied and then we tried to get it off the ground. We couldn't get angel investment. We just shut everything down. There was nothing out of my pocket. It was just time. But at the end of this year of trying and grinding and being so burned out and frustrated and not billing, I mean, I was billing during the day. So I was billing $100, $125 an hour as a consultant, but I wasn't billing it at night because I was busy pissing away my time on this thing. And I'm like, I lost tens of thousands of dollars that I would have been billing. At the end of that year, I looked at my PayPal account where .NET Invoice was. It was the only thing I owned. And I had $25,000 sitting in there that I, had, that I hadn't done that much for. You know, it was, to be honest, it was pretty much on autopilot. And I thought, how many more of these do I need to be able to quit the, day, the grind, you know, to be able to get out of it? And so that was the, the moment about 2006, 2007, where I was like, I don't need a big, I don't need a big one anymore. I can do, you know, uh, uh, a few small ones and kind of stack them on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're stacking along the way, um, thinking, you know, maybe I'll build two, three, four of these different things that each bring in X dollars a month. And then I'm going to be sitting on a really nice lifestyle, nice income. Um, and when did you end up starting drip? What, what year was that founded? Yeah. Apologies to video viewers. I'm moving around the house because I have a child playing cello now behind me, but, um, <laughs> so yeah, drip came after what's interesting is our second son was like 2010 and I was working about 10 hours a week and really excuse me really enjoying it and eventually after about 10 months of it I got pretty bored and I wanted to do that next 
thing, both as a challenge, but also I was kind of like, huh, I'm making just enough money to live about 100, 120K in California. I had a wife, kid in a house. What am I going to do to make more money at some point? And so the next thing was a small SaaS app called Hittail that I acquired. It was failing. The founder was bailing on it. I acquired that and leveled that up. And that was a lot of, that was my next step on my stair step, to be honest. I got more confidence. I then had more money and I didn't spend that money. I put it in the bank. And that's when Drip came about is I had money then to plow into a developer and marketing. And Drip uh, came up with the idea. We implemented it, a basic version of Drip on Hittail itself to help get more emails and mm-hmm. email capture. And that would have been in um, mid to fall of 2012. And we broke ground after I validated it, talked to some founders and said, you know, would you pay for this as a, if I built it into an app, um, started broke ground on that in December of 2012 and then launched in mid 2013. Okay. And um, remind me in the very earliest incarnation was Drip um, meant to be a fully featured email marketing service, or was there one core feature that you were after? It was just one core feature. It was it was little. It was just a little utility that um, all it did was pop up a JavaScript email capture widget on your website and funneled that into an autoresponder sequence that was all within Drip. There was right. no other tool that did that. Uh, there there was so ConvertKit wasn't around. There was no lead boxes. There was no opt-in monster. There was no Sumo. There was no whoever Bounce Exchange. None of those existed. So there was no no way without writing code to get just, you know, the JavaScript toaster widget or a, an exit intent or any of that didn't exist. And so Drip, as far as I know, was it was the first or one of the first to productize that. Yeah. yeah and, and it's all coming back to me now. I, I, I remember first seeing Drip as the intent, I think, was a way to deliver like a five-day email course or that's something. Right. Like that's how people were using it mostly. That was the core promise of it. Yep. Because we had done exactly that with Hittail and it, it gave us like a 30% bump in our trials just because we weren't losing all the... Dri- there were drive-by visitors that would come, look, and walk away. But the moment we started getting them to subscribe, well, you, as you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, of traction in a list. And so we were getting 5,000 subscribers a month or something. It was crazy on Hittail. Had a lot of traffic. Um, and so that was it. I was like, that worked here. Let me give that best practice to everyone who, you know, who would want to use it. So yeah, it was a super simple product. You could not send broadcast emails. You couldn't, you know, you really couldn't do anything with it other than wire it up, send a sequence of however long you wanted it to be. But we had a blueprint built into Drip, you know, where there was a five-day email sequence. And um, were you selling that product? Was that something that people paid for yeah. or was there a free version at the time? No, it, we were never free. Um, we launched in mid-2013, and we were charging $49 a month for it. And we launched between June and kind of d- November as we would, I'd bring in 10 founders or 10 folks who were in marketers, and they'd asked for features. And so we'd spend two, three, four weeks working with them, very much customer development, right, building what they wanted. And then by the time we get to November, I emailed the whole launch list, got everybody in, and the whole time we were charging. Um, as soon as someone got value, it was like, all right, you're either ready to pay or ready to cancel is, is where we would get. So there was never a free version at that point. Yeah. Do I recall from uh, maybe an essay on your site that you're not a fan of free products? It's, it's interesting. For, yeah. 
A, my thinking is changing on that, but B, I've always thought of free plans as like a samurai sword. If you're a master, they're amazing. If you are an amateur, you're likely to cut your arm off. Mm. Uh, they're very hard to get right. Just looking at Dropbox and saying, hey, they're free, so should I, or no yeah. one's actually getting onboarded. I'm just going to make it free. Bad advice. Like the, the people who make free work really know what they're doing. There's a lot of subtleties to it. It's a longer term play. Look out a year, two, or three. You're going to convert you know, 3% of your folks. If you need to get to revenue and quit your job, don't do a free plan. Like that's my general advice. If you need to get to quick revenue, but if you have a long-term play, you have something else funding you, you, you can work it out. There's more in the long-term with a free plan is the idea. You own the lead and you, you can take your time. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm mixed on it as much as like, if you're new, don't do free. And if you really know what you're doing, yes, do free. I mean, there is plenty of successful entrepreneurs who I know today are doing it. It seems like a lot of your advice is based around ways to keep entrepreneurship as simple as you can, That's because because uh, it is an enormously complicated thing. I mean, the the beauty of working in business is that you can explain what a business is in a short phrase or or, or a short paragraph. You have to find a group of people who have some sort of need or desire. Um, reach those people and build something that they want and are willing to pay you for. And so that, you know, you can encapsulate that, but then the truth of being an entrepreneur is there are this enormous complexity of things that you have to focus on. And it's really easy to overcomplicate things to such a degree that, especially as an early entrepreneur, you won't be able to pull off. You can see it all, but the execution part just becomes so difficult. Yeah. Is there, and, is there something in that for you, that simplicity piece? Big time. Because think of, think of what I, all the books that I read to become an entrepreneur, it was all these books aimed at a college MBA students, or it was these, these tales of starting Chevrolet or Ford or, or Microsoft or, you know, QuickBooks or in, uh, I'm sorry, even Oracle. Like there were no books when I started that just said, Hey, they were pretty directive and said, this is a path. Just try this, like do this and it'll probably work. There was no fizzle. There was no, you know, my first book, Start Small, Stay Small, I wrote in 2010, was an absolute reaction to every business and every entrepreneur book I had ever read because they, they just felt like a bunch of information. It was like a journalist reporting on this is everything that goes into a business. And it's like, okay, so how do I start one then? And when I look at the how to start a business books, it was like, so to form an LLC, and it's like, no, I don't need that part. I need like, how do I build a product? Find, you know, I mean, you know exactly. When, that's why you started Fizzle. I'm sure you've gone through the same stuff. And so for me, I've always just been so reactionary to this like, we don't need to overcomplicate this. Yes, as you get more advanced, as you get more knowledgeable, as you get two, three, four steps up the stair step or two, three, four products under your belt or 10 years under your belt, you can break the rules. But my, like my mantra is first, learn the rules. Second, uh, master the rules. And third, learn when to break the rules. But you got to do the first two first. And I felt like nothing I looked at taught me any rules. It just gave me a bunch of bullshit that I that I didn't help me. You know, a bunch of uh, like reading a dictionary of what a you know, definition of what a business is. And, and there's there's such survivorship bias anyway. And in, in all of those case studies, it's like okay, let's look at Oracle and figure out what made them work. But then, of course, in business books, they're talking about Oracle after they were at like ten million dollars in in annual revenue. And and you know, it's hard to mess up a business that has momentum and is at that sort of scale. But getting from nothing 
to your first thousand customers or whatever is is where the really interesting, difficult stuff happens. Yeah, and I can't think of a single book written before uh, 2009 or 10 that ever, I certainly never found one that ever talked about that first million. It was just considered too small. You know, there, there was no so, single founder, solo entrepreneurship, micropreneurship, whatever we want to call it. There, were no, there weren't books. There were people trying to do it. And there were like two examples I knew of. It was me and Patrick McKenzie, Patio 11, if you know, you know, you know of him. Yeah. And maybe there was someone else. But like, I, and I had heard of some people doing like shareware in the late 90s. You know, and there were info, pro, actually there were info product people. So I, should, I shouldn't dismiss them because they came over from the offline space, right? They used to do the physical sales letters. That's why they're That's called right. letters because they mailed them and they made that, they moved that online. So there were, there was little things here and there, but it was not, I believe we're at a, at a much better time in history to try to do this, to be honest. Like this is yeah, like absolutely. a golden absolutely. age of this, you know? And um, so so when we left off in our story about Drip, we were talking about how you built this specific tool to solve this specific problem and you charged for it, $49 a month or something. Yep. Did you get to any meaningful amount of revenue with it being just that small tool, or did you immediately look to start adding more features? So we did get to meaningful revenue, but I'll couch it and say, I already had an audience by this time. This is 2012, and I've been blogging since 2005. I've written two books by this time. I've been running a conference for three years. I have a podcast that's the most popular podcast on bootstrapping at the time, which didn't have that many listeners, but you know, let's say it was seven or 10,000, right? So that's where I was launching to. So yes, by by the end of 2013, Drip was doing um, about seven or eight thousand dollars a month, and which is both which you can say, wow, that's pretty good. That's full time income for me. It was devastating because Hittail, the prior one, was was doing thirty grand a month. Right, that's what I was using to fund Drip, and so AK month was an abject failure for me. I've mm-hmm. I've done this before. How can I not be doing better? You know, and I was pumping marketing dollars into it, and it was just bleeding out. I was just churning people out. So I knew instantly we did not. We had not built something people wanted, you know, and were willing to pay for. Product market fit is a common term used for it, but it's basically we just didn't build something people wanted enough, uh, you know, to be able to pay fifty bucks a month for. And here you were. Uh, you you mentioned that you had built your other company, Hittail, up to a point where you had enough money. You weren't spending that money. You saved it. You had money that you could pour into this new venture. You were paying developer time. Uh, it sounds like you were paying for marketing as well. And seven or eight thousand dollars a month sounds amazing, but uh, you probably were actually uh, net negative at that point. You were still funding the this thing. Company itself, I was. Yeah, it was really yeah. just me. Yeah, it was. It was my time and and one developer at that point. But I did hire another developer within three months because I thought, oh, we need to build more features faster. And so yeah, then we went net negative, which is something I had never done. You know, because you know, as a bootstrapper, you don't, you can't go net negative because you don't have the money to do it, right? That's typically for funded companies. But I was, if you think about it, I was self-funded because I had, let's say, I don't know, it was like 15 or 20 grand of net profit coming off of Hittail each month. And so I could, it it made me both ambitious, but a little bit sloppy in all honesty um, Mm -hmm. to do that. Do you, do you recall then uh, in the middle to end of 2013, when Drip was getting off the ground, you were getting your initial customers were there moments of despair? Did you feel like throwing in the towel? Did you hit bottom at any point? Was there negative thoughts happening around this time? There was, so the negative thoughts came, so there was, I never thought of shutting it down 
because I knew there was something there, but there was absolutely despair. And it came after, it came after, so November is when I sent the big email and we actually converted quite a few people. Like our list was about 3,000 uh, interested folks, 3,300. And to get enough people paying us eight grand a month, I was like, that is pretty good. Like, I'm happy with that. Um, and it wasn't until a month or two later, maybe even three, where I was like, now I'm running Facebook ads, now I'm doing content marketing, you know, I'm doing all the things that I've been doing, and none of them were working. Well, they were putting people into the funnel, and then they were either weren't converting or they were converting and then churning. And that's when I, to be honest, we recorded, so we recorded like an audio documentary. It was like nine months. We recorded about 15 minutes a week, and then I edited that down from nine hours to about 90 minutes of audio, and I put it out. It's called Startup Stories uh, Podcast. Com. You can go there and just, it's free, just download it. But it's, you'll hear in the middle of that where I can't listen to it anymore because it like the hair on my neck stands up because it's so traumatizing to, to, to be in despair and be like, I don't even know what we're building. Like why, how, what are we going to do here? You know? And so there were really hard conversations there where I was telling my, he was a contractor at the time, but he later became like a retroactive co-founder telling him, I, I don't know how we're going to do this. And the way we pulled out of it was there were people in my audience and there were people who were paying for the product who said, you know what, this is a really well-built product. It's very easy to use. It's elegant, does exactly what I need it. Have you thought about just adding broadcasts to it and becoming a full-on ESP and then uh, email service provider, you know, like a MailChimp or an Aweber and then adding just some simple automation to it. So you're, you're like a, a and the people would throw out names that I had never, literally never heard of Infusionsoft. Entreport, Marketo, Pardot, Silverpuff. I'd never heard those things. And so I had to go research what those were. And then I was like, oh, they're like the next step up from MailChimp, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I knew the kind of ESP market. And that was it. It was, it was a pretty constant influx of feedback of like, have you thought of doing this? This, of course, there were five of those for every 20 people who said something totally different. And part of being a founder is you have to make decisions, hard decisions with incomplete information. And so there was a lot of, I don't want to spell it out like, oh, 10 out of 10 people told me to go build an ESP. That was not the case. It was very right. noisy. But there were these certain signals that we were, you know, was following as a gut feel as a founder to be like, I think we're, I think we're moving towards something that people want. Was there, you know, in, in entrepreneurship, I think there's this idea of um, next feature fallacy. Oh, yeah. Where the next thing I build is going to lead to that breakthrough. Absolutely. In your case with Drip, was there something that really helped you turn a corner? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where I, <laughs> it's the exception that proves the rule in all honesty, you know, but here's, so here's the thing with post product market fit companies where you've already built something your people want and you're scaling it. I think next feature fallacy is, is absolutely legit. And it's very hard to build a single feature that's going to elevate growth past that. Before you've built something people want, every feature is trying to get you to the point that people are dying for what you have. And so I would say that it almost doesn't apply there. And so, yes, once we got like broadcast was a little tick up, but it was, it was automation that really did it for us. It was the ability to click a link in an email and add a tag to someone or click a link in an email and move someone from one campaign to the next. You know, just basic stuff that we take for granted. And today, in 2013, this was only available in, in tools that were three, four, five hundred dollars a month and up. And so, once we started doing, it's funny. I did a talk on this, and I have graphs where I completely stopped all marketing spend. I didn't write any content, and our trial count 
just starts, it doesn't plummet, but it just starts coasting down. And as we build, and then I have a graph of, of how many automations we implemented. And then I have a graph of our churn and our trial to paid, and it's all going the opposite direction. So it was, it was, it is the, when you look at the graphs, it's like, that is what product market fit looks like, is you've built something that people want, and you're not even trying to get them in anymore, but people were just telling other people about it. And um, yeah, basically 2014 was the year of, of finding product market fit. And we turned the corner with automations. And that's where we went from kind of being, we were, we were stable or growing about 500 or $1,000 a month, right? We went from 8K to 8,500, you know, to mm -hmm. 9K. When we launched automations, we started growing 5K a month. And then when we launched workflows, which is a visual way of doing automations, where it's a, yeah, it's a big workflow diagram, that doubled overnight. And then it went, it even went up from there. So those were the two, like the two feature features that really made, you know, kind of made the difference. You've mentioned uh, several times content marketing and, and I would say, um, you know, nowadays people may know you from drip, but microconf is certainly, uh, you know, very well known in the bootstrapper space and your podcast as well. You said that you've been blogging since 2005 how important has content marketing been to your success, um, either from an audience growth standpoint or because of some sort of intangible benefits? It has been very important. The intangibles are immeasurable. And I, and I mean that truly in the sense of, I don't know how many people would have given me really good and honest feedback and taken the time to write in or email or whatever when Drip was kind of floundering. And these were really smart people who were way ahead of me in terms of marketing who would take the time to write in and be like, I'm going to help Rob out and give him advice that he should go build a marketing automation platform. Without that, I, I don't know if Drip becomes what it became. Um, trying to get early customers. I mean, one of the reasons Drip you know, Drip didn't just grow as fast as it did because of the features. I shouldn't imply that, oh, we just built automation and it just took off. I was also busting my ass marketing. And part of that is I wanted people to feel like Drip was everywhere. And part of doing that is I talked to every influencer that I knew and said, would you consider switching? You know, and you and I had a, had a call at one point, right? And we talked through, you were on MailChimp and we talked through stuff. And that was part of, of making the rounds of saying, hey, 100 startup founders, it was probably 150 startup founders that I know and, you know, 50 podcasting buddies and whatever else. I know you're on MailChimp or Infusionsoft or whatever. Would you consider? And it wasn't a hard sales pitch, but it was simply an email I dropped you, right? And I said, hey, here's what I've built and here's what it does. And this is the price point. Does it sound intriguing? And I got on a bunch of phone calls and those, some of them panned out and some of them didn't, but the ones that did made people, when you'd go to microconf, there's 250 people in a room and I'd say, how many people here use Drip? And you'd get like 180 hands in the air. And that, there was a reason that happened. And it's because people trusted me. They liked me. They wanted me to succeed. I did, now, I did have to build a good tool, but what if I had no audience? You know, how would that, any of that happen? And it wasn't just, it wasn't just about making individual sales. It was also about making it, it expanded and it expanded with people who influence others. Um, and people were willing to give me a shout out. We'd launch a new feature and I would get tweets from people. It was like, wow, you're not even a user, but you just have followed my story for eight years. You know, so I, it's a trip. I mean, when I look back, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours, I've spent blogging for free, podcasting for free, 
whatever else I've done, you know, for writing things for free or writing books that, you know, uh, I, one of my books, I just give away on my website. Um, and yet I've never once thought, oh, that was time wasted. I genuinely think that, that it is, it's a, just, it's, it's hard to even peel that away from, from what, you know, what's contributed to my success, to be honest. And it's, and it's not as if you have directly mononetized those, that content marketing in some way, really. No, no. The Aside only things, that. yeah. The con- I mean, there's so there's the only things that I like. I sell a book. You know, my start small, stay small is twenty dollars or whatever, and that's actually done well for me. It I expected to make about ten grand from the book when I launched it, and it's made two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in in nine years. It's become very popular. I didn't expect it to. That's been a blessing, and it certainly helped at times. Um, and then the conference makes a, a bit of money, and to me, the conference wouldn't exist without the blog and the podcast. There was no way to get to sell as many tickets as we needed to without an audience, right? It's so hard to, to bootstrap a conference. So that's the content marketing that kind of is the personal brand side. Then there's content marketing. Like once we launched Drip, I was writing content around, this is what marketing automation is. This is how you shoot up your email game. You know, it was very tactical stuff. Um, and that was really to get people in the door and, and to try Drip. So I almost kind of separate those two. There's audience building, like personal audience building. And then there's like tactical tool, like drive you to convert. Uh, and, and both of them have been, um, successful for me, I would say that the drip content marketing served a purpose at the time, and it was to get more people to use drip. But that content doesn't do anything for me now. It didn't make it didn't make me a, a you know have a bigger reputation. It I don't carry that around with me. All the other stuff about sharing my journey, trying to help other people, sharing thoughts I have, philosophies, stair step approach, all that stuff. That's what has stuck with me, right? That's what sticks with you because it, it's about the person and and your brand follows you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you built drip, uh, we can fast forward just a little bit here. And in 2016, you sold the company to lead pages, correct? That's right. Yep. And, um, I saw just a little blurb. I think you, or someone described it as a life changing amount of money, uh, which is generally the case when you're selling a successful SaaS business. So uh, life has changed for you quite a bit since 2016. I assume that you you must have um, stuck around for a while after the sale to yep. sort of uh, transition things. Yep. Yeah, I was there for about 18 months after the sale. Okay. Yep. Uh, and since then, um, you rode off into the sunset and, and you don't do anything involving entrepreneurship anymore. That was it. I play tabletop games with my kids and I... No, I don't do that. I, I tried no, you, to do that. I got to be honest, Corbett. I tried to do that. It's well, I didn't just say I tried. I kidded myself into thinking I could. And my wife the whole time was like, no way, dude. No way. I kept saying, I'm not starting another company, not going to do it. No chance. So that's what I did. About six months after that, started another one. So you, so you started six months, you took six months off, uh, tried to retire early, and everything in your, your body, psyche was saying, this is way too early. And also it's boring. I mean, it's great to have time with the family, but to be honest, your family doesn't even want to see you that much, right? That's right. That's right. And to come back to the earlier thing, you know, I didn't, I didn't start a company to get rich. I started a company so I had an, would have enough money that I would have the freedom to, to make what I wanted. Because to me, it comes back to making. I've always been a writer. I've been a creator. You know, I build physical things. I build uh, mental things. I build companies. And so I knew that eventually I was going to, make something new. I mean, I, to be honest, after I left Drip, I started sketching out ideas to, to create a, a board game. And I considered doing it like a tabletop game. I'm really into tabletop gaming. I was going to do a Kickstarter. I didn't need to make a bunch of money from it. It would have just been a project, you know? Um, 
there were a bunch, I was going to write another book, just a uh, kind of a story of drip and, and uh, like a, a lot like the, you know, the story of Nike, the shoe dog, right? Try to do a drip version of that. It's not going to be obviously nearly as, as successful, but just my own little tale. And again, I don't need to make money from it, but would that be fun to do? So the, to me, those things, I also play the guitar. I write songs. I wrote a bunch of songs during that time. You know, each of these things to me is it exercises that maker portion of your brain and starting mm-hmm. companies is the same for me. I, I think, I think we're probably, I think for you as well, it seems like, you know, knowing you, it's like, we're blessed that the things we enjoy doing also in general, make us money. I think that's like a pretty unique gift. Yeah. It is. And, and like you said earlier, we live in an amazing time to be doing all of this, uh, to be building companies, to have examples, to have support, to have tools that help us build companies. Uh, it feels like a more egalitarian time that we live in because ownership is in a lot more people's hands. At least that's the way I perceive it. I don't know what the the overall uh, actual macroeconomic trends look like, right. but for the people that we know, if you have an idea, if you have the work ethic, if you're willing to put in the time and effort to try to serve an audience, try to grow an audience, try to serve them, try to build things for them, it is possible now to have a great career. Maybe you won't have a home run, maybe you won't be wealthy, but to have a great career as an entrepreneur building something, um, and that seems like a very unique thing, brought about mostly because of the internet and uh, and um, social platforms. So instead of building a tabletop game, you decided to jump back and serve the people that you had been working with for the past 15 years or so. And you've started something that I think is really striking a chord with people because for so long, the only sources of funding and support for businesses, it seems, has really either been uh, the Small Business Administration, which frankly seems out of touch, and I don't know a single person who has ever benefited from that, um, or the venture capital industry, which is this massive, hungry, overfunded machine that produces things that never make money, frankly. Uh, this boggles my mind, and and we don't have to rant about it, but the fact that it's this house of cards that... Um, basically passes the bag further and further down until it gets to the public markets. And then the public funds this thing that's not making money. And and who knows if it ever will. It's just, it's just amazing that it works that way. And it's, it's just a hype machine basically to, to get this thing to go public. Uh, and we see it with WeWork and Uber and, and all these businesses, which yep. frankly, you know, I tell my friends and, and family members, if a startup offers a service that you like and is well-funded to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars, use that thing as much as you can because it's subsidized. Yep. Uber should not be as cheap as it is. Right. You can see it in their in their books. And same with WeWork and everything else. Instacart, same way. Yep. Instacart. But all that aside, <laughs> there's this obvious um, concern amongst uh, bootstrappers overtaking money from venture capital because it distorts your business. It um, creates a layer of almost bosses that you have to work for. You know, most of us get into this because we want to call our own shots and have fun and, and build something and not have a whole lot of people telling us what to do. And when we take venture capital, we end up with a board of directors, investors, all these sorts of things telling us um, where to go. So you decided to start something to serve bootstrappers 
with funding, support, all that sort of stuff. Tell us about Tiny Seed. Yeah, so Tiny Seed is the first startup accelerator designed for people who would traditionally bootstrap. And so it is aimed at software founders, uh, SaaS in particular, but the nice part is the model is is not the model of Tiny Seed itself, but this whole concept of can we fund businesses without forcing them to become unicorns, right? To become hundred million or billion dollar businesses. That's what we're going after. And it's exactly, it's, it's building real businesses that sell real products to real customers for real money. You know, it's, it's, it is going after profitability, not immediately, right? Break even is great or, you know, burning a tiny bit of money is, is good, but like, let's get to profitability by the time we're in the low digit millions, because that's what a real business is, you know? And so, yeah, Tiny Seed is a year long program. It's like, if folks are familiar with Y Com, or 500 startups or tech stars, um, they typically do a three-month program and you have to move to a city. We do a year-long program and it's remote. So we have funded 10 companies and we do it in a batch. So they all, you know, we get a big application process. We got uh, just under 900 applicants for the first batch. We funded 10 companies and so, let's see, seven of them are in the US, one's in Mexico and two are in Europe. And we do weekly calls with the whole batch for the camaraderie and the, you know, everybody's pushing for the thing. Everybody's ambitious, but not, I call it like ambitious, but not insane. <laughs> it's a pejorative term. I only use that internally, but it's like, we're not crazy, but we all, everybody wants to build seven or, you know, multi-million or deca-million dollar businesses, but they're not going to sacrifice their, their personal health, their mental health, their relationships, or, you know, the other things to get there. They're not working 90 hour weeks. And, and I mean, to be honest, I've, I have had very short periods of time in my life where I've worked more than 40 hour weeks uh, to get things going, but it's been for a month or two. Every other time, uh, aside from really early days, as all, I've always held to this work 40 or less and then live a life outside of that. And, and I've been able to, I would, I, I feel that I'm successful, you know, and, and I feel like that is possible too. So our founders are all ambitious. Um, we write checks between $120,000 and up to about 180 or 200,000, depending on how many founders are on the team. And then we provide them with that community. We have a Slack group and mentorship. So we have some of the, I mean, honestly, it's like a, a just a leaderboard of the SaaS founders, the bootstrap SaaS founders. You might've heard of Jason Freed from Basecamp, DHH, Chris Savage from Wistia, Rand Fishkin from Moz, you know, just all the, all the folks that, that I would have wanted. I mean, to be honest, man, everything I've done, I've had the luxury of like, I built Drip uh, with, with my co-founder Derek of like, this is the ESP I I've always wanted. And I wrote Start Small, Stay Small of this is the book I wish had been there. And I, we started MicroConf because there was no conference for us. I wish that this is a conference I want to attend. Tiny Seed is the accelerator I, I wish existed when I was starting. And um, when is the next batch of, of Tiny Seed? Yeah, so the next batch, uh, the applications open on November 1st. So I'm guessing just shortly after, you know, we just announced that in the last couple of days. And they run, okay. for, applications are open for about a month. And then, you know, we'll take December to interview. And then we start talking in January and then legal and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, we'll actually fund in maybe late winter, early spring of 2020. But it's basically six weeks out before, you know, the next batch of uh, folks applying. And we're looking, we're hoping to fund more than 10 this this time, actually, if you don't mind, just for a second, to get um, geeky on the on the finance side yep. uh, with Tiny Seed, with traditional uh, VC investments, uh, they're generally looking for their return to happen when the company sells. Yep. But in the case of bootstrap businesses, a lot of times your intent isn't necessarily to sell. Mm -hmm. 
with tiny seed, uh, do you have some way to account for that? Um, are you encouraging people to sell eventually or what if somebody just wants to run a business for the next 20 years? Yeah. And that's a, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because that's, there's a couple really key differentiators between us and venture capital. Um, as you said earlier, you know, venture capital has a board. They can typically block a sale if they don't want you to do it. They can block finance rounds. They will often really heavily pressure you to raise more money, all those things. So we don't do any of that. We're, you don't have a board. We are a minority shareholder. We cannot, you outvote us. Basically, the founders outvote us. Um, so those are some key things. The other things is, uh, thing is, uh, VCs tend to back, or they only back Delaware C-Corps as a rule, right? And, and C-Corps is kind of like, you're going to sell it, you're going to IPO. You're really not going to take profit out of a C-Corp because you get double taxed on it, right? You pay tax at the corporate level. And then again, uh, personal income tax. Well, we fund LLCs and C-Corps, and we fund them in any of the 50 states. And so that allows us to have, it, it's, to be honest, it's pretty complicated to do that. And, and no, all the venture lawyers we talk to are super confused by why we're doing that, but mm -hmm. it's a novel approach. And that allows our um, companies to take one of three tax. One, they can always, they can sell if they want. And then we would all reap the benefits and we get the pro rata amount that we've invested, you know, that we own. Second option is they can just run it in perpetuity and they take out dividends, just owner's draws. Um, SaaS is, the profit margins on SaaS can be 50% or higher. So you build a $5 million SaaS company, pull out two and a half million a year, that's life-changing for the founder. And we, that model works for us. You know, mm -hmm. we make enough money that it pays back the fund and we're good. Third option is I'm guessing at some point someone's going to get to the point where they're doing 10, 20 million a year and they're going to want, not want us as investors anymore. And then they can come and say, hey, we do want to buy you out. And then we agree on something and, you know, they can buy us out. So there are many ways to do it. And our big thing is optionality. Just like we want to give you the option. If, if our founders want to raise another round, then they should. And we, nothing in our terms uh, keep that from happening. We've already had one founder raise at least a, like another small round and another one's in talks right now because they just wanted a little more money just for safety. Some of other, our other founders may never raise and they, they just want to, one founder said, I just want to get several million dollars and sell. I want that life-changing exit myself. And other founders say, I want to run it for 20 years. And so any of those things, none of that, you know, not none of it, but two thirds of that is not possible with venture funding. And that's what we're trying to do is 99% of, of businesses and even 99% of tech startups can't and shouldn't take venture funding, you know, because the terms just don't make sense for you and your business is never going to be at that scale. How can we figure out how to get more money into those folks, folks like you and I who just, you know, want to build a, a super profitable, but maybe not a venture scale business. Yeah. Uh, in the first batch of Tiny Seed, are there any businesses that you can tell us about that you're excited about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in all honesty, I'm having run through 900 of them or almost 900 and having 10, I'm excited about all 10 of them. You know, it would be kind of weird if I, if I wasn't, but um, a couple I can call out that in fact, your folks may have heard of Castos, which is one of the, I think it is the top rated uh, WordPress uh, podcast hosting plugin. And Castos is a SaaS app built on top of that plugin. And so mm. um, that, Plugins called Seriously Simple Podcasting. Uh, Startups so for the rest of us now runs on that actually, and I'm looking to move over to to their hosting. So that's fun. Castos. Um, let me see another one that might make sense. Oh, there's a really fun one. Well, there's one called Sim SaaS, S-I-M SaaS, which is um, a second time founder actually, and that one's cool because it's like predictive analytics. It's forecasts, and it takes a. It has almost AI, machine learning, and algorithms to look at your SaaS and try to predict where it's going to go, based on where it is today. That's interesting. And then there's a super fun one that's a, a super vertical that none of us have ever heard of. And it's a crazy, it's like, how would you even start in that vertical? But it's called Popsicle. 
and it's uh, I think yeah it's getpopsicle.com and it helps schools simplify their after school classes camps by do, making everything paperless. And so I would never start a SAS app in that space because to me, it's like schools with budgets and stuff, but the guy who did it ran after school programs for a decade and he actually franchised them in LA and built their own software internally, turned that into a SaaS app. And now, you know, he he's frankly has quite a bit of traction because he knows the space and I don't know how long it'll be until he has competition. These little verticals and by little, I mean, Potential to be, you know, deca millions of dollars, little compared to what. So, a twenty million dollar ARR annual revenue company is a failure to a venture fund. To yeah. us and the found, it's the founder that's life changing, and to us that's a win. You know, that's yeah. that's we want to flip that calculus, right? Love it, Rob. Uh, in in parting, for uh, people listening to this who may be experiencing that dip that you felt in twenty thirteen, where they were all excited about getting something started and it proves to be more difficult, less fruitful um, than they thought. And, and maybe they've lost faith a little bit. What would you, what would you give them for advice to, to keep them going and to help them find that success that they're looking for? Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's a good question. I think there's a couple things. It's like, I can, part of it can be bad advice. Like something I say over and over is like, don't be afraid of hard work and really grinding it out, but don't build your life or your business around having to do that, right? Mm. So that's the first thing is like, don't feel like this should be easy or come easy. I think that's a pipe dream. And I think it's, as you said, survivor bias and people telling stories in, in retrospect. I think the other thing is if it's really not working and it's a business that you want to work and it's not, maybe it's time to, to make a shift and to think more about stair-stepping. You know, have you been too ambitious? Have you tried to boil the ocean? Could you step back and just write a 30-page ebook on a topic you're you're aware of? And maybe it only sells $100 a month. That's still $100 that you, you know, wouldn't have had. And it's still some experience. Like, you know, my first book's called Start Small, Stay Small. And I don't necessarily believe in the stay small anymore, but the start small, I, I still think all of us could could take as, as pretty good advice. Love it. Uh, Rob, I was going to send people to robwalling.com to check you out. There's tons of great essays there. You can find links to the podcast. You can find links to Tiny Seed. Is there anything else you wanted to share with people today? I think the only other thing is if folks are into podcasting, since they're listening to this one, um, Startups for the Rest of Us is uh, you know something I talk every, every week. 30 minutes on topics like this. It's not solely software, um, but it is, you know, a little, a little bit focused in that direction, but it's very much in line with what you guys talk on. Yes. And I, I can't recommend that highly enough startups for the rest of us. You're up to episode 462, I think That's right. Yeah. now uh, you've been doing it since 2010. It's one of the longest running podcasts, the most consistent and most useful on a week to week basis. So thank that's you, a great sir. one for people to check out. Appreciate Rob Walling, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me back. To all you listeners out there, thanks to you for being here. If you like today's episode, would you leave us a review or tell somebody about the show? We depend on listeners like you to help us get the word out and a review or referral is the best way to show your appreciation for the show. As always, you can find the full show notes over at fizzleshow.co. That's F-I-Z-Z-L-E-S-H-O-W dot C-O. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. Fizzle Show.